theyeshiva.net. I'm going to discuss a few aspects that are extremely relevant to families, to parents who are struggling with children. The first component is the shame. And I begin with this aspect is because I think that it's shame that prevents many of us to really be able to respond from a place of empowerment, from a place of emotional strength and health. Now, every family, every community has different dynamics. I don't have to tell you. You can't compare Bnei Brak to Kiryat Sefer, Meir Sha'arim to other parts of Jerusalem, Teaneck to Englewood, Muncie to Williamsburg, Borough Park to Lakewood. And within each city itself, and within each country itself, there are so many different types of communities. So when I speak about shame, it doesn't come in one color or one shape. But I'm going to speak about it more in a generic fashion, and if it relates to you in some way, I hope you'll be able to apply it. The concept of shame is we grow up, and I'm not. I'm, this is not a. So, this is not social. This is not about sociological judgmentalism at all. It's just about the facts on the ground of how many of us handle our lives and our struggles. Very often. There's a tremendous emphasis on fitting in, being a success story in the orthodox religious community. What does a success story look like? A success story looks like you raise a beautiful family, children who are from, children who learn Torah, who celebrate mitzvahs, who love Yiddishkeit, who are connected to their family, who follow in the path of their parents, and at the right time they we marry them off and we pray and hope to God that they continue that legacy and that tradition with their children and grandchildren. Or as a rabbi once told me when I asked him, what's your mission statement <laughs> for your community? He says, it's three things. I hatch them, I match them, and I dispatch them. And we often hope that it's like a conveyor belt, you know? The child gets born. If it's a boy, he has a bris. Upsharanish, Upsharan at three years old, you put him or her on the conveyor belt, they go through, they go through the school system, Chedu system, Yeshiva system, Talmud Torah system, day school system, whatever the system is, Bar Mitzvah, Bas Mitzvah, send them off to good schools, good Yeshivas, good high schools, ultimately good seminaries, good Bate Medrash in South Africa and the Holy Land or wherever they go, and at some point they will maybe come back to South Africa, maybe go elsewhere and begin building their own family. And it's beautiful. And uh, to be able to see the nachas of parents who have the privilege of raising children who are happy and healthy and inspired and uplifted and want to continue the path of their parents is amazing and it's incredible and it's probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest, gift in life. And especially many of you, many of us, who are balei tshuva, which means you made very big sacrifices to come to Yiddishkeit. It's not how you grew up. The South African community is blessed with having so many intelligent women and men who have chosen the path of Torah at a later point in life. And that meant you had to stand up to your father and to your mother and to your brothers and to your sisters and to uncles and aunts and to grandparents. And you had to display conviction and a spine and deep moral clarity. Many of you, I know many of you personally, and I know about you. I've had the privilege of visiting the South African community many times physically, and then many times virtually, <laughs> as Rabbi Shmuel just testified. And uh, I have the privilege of being acquainted with so many amazing, amazing Jews, women and men in the South, Af- in in the South African community. And I know the deep commitment and dedication 
that so many of you have brought to your lives, to your Judaism, to raising your family. And then the pain and the shame of watching your own son, your own daughter, saying, goodbye, mommy, goodbye, tati. Maybe taking off their yarmulke. Maybe Shabbos becomes insignificant. Maybe they start using different substances that seem to be very inconducive with a life of Yerushamayim, with a life of Yiddishkeit. There's so much pain, and there's so much shame, and there's so much guilt. And it's not just the external shame of my neighbor, my cousin, my brother, my sister, that too. There's also my internal shame. I feel so embarrassed with myself. We feel like such failures. And then there's the guilt. What did I do wrong? Why is my sister marrying off all her kids and they're all from? Why is my brother successful with his children? He has so much nachas. Why are we the ones who were punished so badly? What did we do wrong? Are we really so abusive? Were we so neglectful? Have we abandoned our kids? What mistakes did we make? What does God want from us? What do these children want from us? There's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of shame. And there's so much heartache and pain. And there's a lot of blaming. The husband blames the wife. The wife blames the husband. Parents blame the children. There's also so much anger. There's a lot of anger involved. And this is the first thing that has to be addressed here. Because if you're not going to work through those emotions, you will not be able to be here for your children. I'm going to say this again. If you do not work through these emotions, you will not be able to be here for your children. What does it mean to work through these emotions? It doesn't mean that you don't have them. We're human. We're frail. We're vulnerable. We suffer from guilt. We suffer from shame. We suffer from social conformity. Yes, it's sometimes embarrassing. It's embarrassing for your community. You feel embarrassed for your shul members. You feel embarrassed for your brother-in-law. You feel embarrassed for your own parents. You feel embarrassed for your good friends. You don't want to talk about this. So these are all normal emotions. And pain is, of course, it's a genuine emotion. And in fact, pain is actually a very healthy reaction to such a crisis. So welcome to the club. Welcome to humanity. And guilt is very normal. You feel guilty. You ask questions and you want to find reasons. And you put a very heavy burden on yourself. But friends... Although all of these emotions are normal and we have to acknowledge them and such, we have to notice all of them, have compassion on them, understand they're part of the journey. And when we do that, we can also make decisions. Are we going to be making our choices based on emotions of guilt and of shame and of embarrassment and of anger and of infuriation and of ire and of pain? Or am I going to make choices based on what will be the best for my child. So this is so important to understand, because so many of us don't speak to anybody because of shame. We're too embarrassed to speak. We're too embarrassed to get help. The challenge with that is, when I'm too embarrassed to get help, I don't get help. And who suffers? I suffer, and my loved ones suffer. So it is extremely important here to understand what Yiddishkeit is about. This may be your ultimate test in Yiddishkeit. Is Judaism about fitting into the community? Is Judaism about saying the right thing so other people are pleased with me? Is Judaism about having a family that looks good in the pictures? Is Judaism about being that person that people could say, psst, psst, 
Nachas, Nachas, Nachas. And I say to you that that is what Judaism has become for many of us. But that is actually a form of idolatry that has nothing to do with God, that has nothing to do with truth, that has to do with absolute conformity and often selling our soul in order to fit in. Sometimes the great challenge in life happens right now with these children. They help us become real. They help us become authentic. They challenge us to ask not what our children can do for you, but ask what you can do for your children. Ask not what God can do for you. Ask what you can do for God. Ask not how Judaism can become something that allows you to fit in and get validation from family or community members, but ask a much deeper question. What does God want from me today? What does Hashem want from every Jewish father and mother today? To quote Mordechai's immortal words that we just read to Esther at the end of the fourth chapter of Megillus Esther. Esther is confronted with the worst nightmare. Her people are about to be slaughtered in a massive genocide that never occurred previously in history. Mordechai pleads with her to go to her husband, Achashverosh, and ask him to save the people to annul the decree. And Esther says, I can't. He's going to kill me. He's going to execute me. He has no problem executing queens, as we know, with this man. He's a madman. He's a drunk. He's a fool. He's a dictator. He's a tyrant. If you come in without permission, you go out with a head shorter. And Mardukai responds. And he responds with very, very intense and loaded words. But his last words cut through my chest every year again like a knife. Where Mardukai says, Mi im le'es who knows, Esther, if this is not the reason divine providence has orchestrated events so that you should become a queen. You were abducted. You never asked to become a queen. Esther was a wonderful base Yaakov graduate, or by Rochel, or by or by or or Shulamit, or Neveh, or whatever the right name is. Esther was valedictorian of the best Jewish educational school system for girls in the world, including in South Africa. And suddenly she ends up in the palace of a non-Jewish, Gentile, Persian, alcoholic, addicted, mad tyrant. And Mardukai says, it's not a mistake. It's not a mistake. Are we going to ask questions what people think about us? Are we going to ask questions of what could have been, what should have been? Or are we going to ask the one most important and maybe only important question, what is my mission at this moment? What is my shlichus at this moment? Mo Hashem shoyel me'imoch. In Moshe's immortal words, what does God, what does the Rebbeinu Shalom ask of you? And of you, and of you, and of you, and of me today? That's the question. That's a very different question. That's not a question based on shame. It's not a question based on guilt. It's not a question based on fear. It's not a question based on anger. It's not a question based on frustration or depression. It's a question that comes from the deepest part in us, from the part that is capable of mirroring divine infinity, divine love, divine compassion. It's the question that every parent needs to ask today. What is my mission today? And if I just go into this place of anger and self-pity and 
I'm infuriated with everybody and everything, beginning with my spouse, and beginning with my kids, and beginning with myself, and beginning with my own parents, and beginning with my family. Fine, I get it. I, we understand these emotions. And you need somebody to talk about them with. And have compassion. You don't have to deny it. You don't have to repress it. You don't have to suppress it. You can embrace it all with sensitivity and compassion. These are part of being human and normal. We are a channel for many, many emotions. But don't get stuck in any of them. Don't allow them to derail you from your path, from your mahalach, from your journey, from your destiny. That's the question, the most important question. What is your mission as parents? The only way you'll be able to do this is if you will acknowledge all the other emotions, you will have a healthy outlet for them. You will be able to embrace them. You won't judge them. Because if you judge your shame, if you judge your guilt, if you judge your anger, if you judge your pain, they're not going to disappear. They're just going to go into hiding. And they will leak out in dysfunctional ways. They will come out in indirect ways and contaminate the atmosphere in your marriage and in your home. Acknowledge them. Make space for them. And then make a choice from a place of empowerment. Viktor Frankl said, between stimuli and response, there is a tiny little space. That's where human freedom lives. When you're struggling with children, you need to learn about that space. And let me say one more thing. Marriages are so important. When curveballs are thrown your way, it's the fortress that comes from a powerful marriage between a husband and a wife that can allow a couple to deal with it in a much more effective and functional way. When crisis destroys the marriage, corrodes the marriage, interrupts the marriage, when I feel I cannot trust you, you feel you can't trust me, things become much worse than they are. This doesn't mean a husband and wife always have to agree or see eye to eye, but it means they always have to be able to respect the other person's view, to listen to each other, and to be able to become empathetic witnesses towards each other and for each other. The ability to be able to listen to each other, to be able to cry together and laugh together, to be able to be on the same team. This cannot become a blame game because if it becomes a blame game, the children are going to suffer more than everybody else. It's very important in these situations when you're dealing with your children to focus on your marriage, which brings me to the next point, and that is... This may not be easy to hear. A, ch- a teenager once told me, Rabbi Waiwai, you think it's easy to raise parents today? I love the line because what's really happening is, and I know you don't see it this way and I get it, each one of these children who's taking you through the ringer is giving you an opportunity for unbelievable spiritual, emotional, psychological, and physical growth. I know we don't ask for it. yes. I know all of us want our children just to follow the trajectory of Yiddishkeit and to follow the derech and to follow on the path and to celebrate the gifts that their parents and their community have given to them and to move on with Torah mitzvahs and that's the greatest blessing. But I want to tell you something else. If that's not happening, it's not by mistake. And God has not abandoned you. This is an opportunity for unbelievable growth. It's not easy. It's painful. But like in, like in exercise, or in yoga, or in Pilates, when you stretch, it hurts. And when you lift weights, you tear the tissue of your muscles, which allows the muscles to rebuild themselves. 
All these experiences in life are causing us to stretch, to stretch our imagination, to expand our souls, to expand our hearts, to become more mature, to become more honest, to become more authentic. Don't run. This is your opportunity. Which brings me to the next point. Why is this happening today? Why is this happening? What happened? There's a lot of reasons, of course. Some children have been abused. Some children have been molested. Some children grew up in dysfunctional homes. Some children grew up in very functional homes, but they struggled in school. Some children have learning disabilities. Some children have mental anguish or mental illness. Some of us suffer from a lot of anxiety or depression. Some of us have identifiable trauma. Some of us have what we call complex trauma or prolonged trauma or developmental trauma, which means it's not one traumatic event or events that can be identifiable, but small things, each one on its own doesn't seem significant, but after a few months or a few years, it adds up and it changes the child. All that's true. But there's, and then of course, Corona didn't help. The amount of addiction to screening after Corona, the amount of porn addiction, the amount of use of weeds, alcohol, or other destructive substances, sometimes more serious in the last few years, has increased. Also, various addictions have increased, not to a small degree because of the accessibility that so many youngsters have that they didn't have in previous generations. But in addition to all of this, I want to also tell you the good news. The good news This is my opinion. I may be wrong about this. I've said this many times. I think it's absolutely true, but I can completely appreciate another opinion which would completely disregard and disagree with me. I'm just sharing my own flow of consciousness and you could do with it as you like. If it resonates, great. If it doesn't resonate, press control, all delete and scratch this piece of the lecture. We are now living before the Geula. We're living before Mashiach's coming. Very close. And there's a certain redemptive consciousness that's waiting to come into the world. And when redemptive consciousness needs to come into the world, we need all of our issues to be worked out. Because what is Geula? Geula is the time when we will experience full oneness with the Rebbeinu Shalaylam. To quote the Rambam, Geula is a time, he quotes the Navi Yeshaya, Isaiah chapter 11, The earth will be filled with divine awareness like water covers the sea. It's the time of absolute intimacy and kinship between the human being, every other human being, the Jewish people, the entire planet, the entire cosmos, the entire universe, and God. It's the ultimate oneness. The true spiritual underlying divine energy in every single atom, in every single cell, in every single neuron, in every single electron and neutron will emerge. And the entire universe will become one. But for that to happen, we need to spit out our toxicity. We need to spit out our trauma. We need to spit out our dysfunction. And many of our children are doing that. They cannot relate anymore to hypocrisy, to lies, to deception. Remember, in epigenetics, we know that trauma affects genes. So every one of us carries in our genes trauma of thousands of years. And all of it is coming out now in many of our children. But just like they carry the trauma of 2,000 years, they also carry the faith, the resilience, the wisdom, the amuna, the mysterious nefesh, the depth, the commitment, the dedication, the brilliance, the emotions, the bitachan. 
the godless, the kedusha, the greatness, the holiness, the righteousness, and also the pain and the trauma. Now, for many generations, the motto was, put one foot ahead of another foot and just move on. That's been our motto as well. Many of us have seen parents or grandparents who in many ways were martyrs. And I'm saying even martyrs who stayed alive, but the focus was, forget about what you're feeling, just move on and live a fine life. And they were incredible, incredible people. But somehow it seems that now God is summoning us to a different level of consciousness. One in which we don't only disregard ourselves, but one in which we ultimately work ourselves through. We allow ourselves to become hollow, to become channels for Ein Seif, to become channels for divine infinite energy. For that I have to be able open myself up, not to be stuck in toxicity, not to be stuck in dysfunction, not to be stuck in trauma which is stuck in my body, the body keeps the score, and which does not allow me to live an expansive life in which I'm a conduit for the divine. Essentially, every one of us is an ambassador of Hashem in this world. You're an ambassador of infinite love and light and hope and wisdom and authenticity and healing and redemptiveness. But for me to be an ambassador, I have to be able to be open to that. And when I get stuck in my own impaired beliefs about myself, I get stuck in self-loathing and in self-shame and in guilt and in anger. It's very difficult for me to be that ambassador. Our children today are challenging us. They are triggering us, but they're waking us up to become the ultimate generation. This is your finest hour, my dear friends, to paraphrase Winston Churchill. This is your finest hour. My finest hour doesn't emerge when everything is just serene and tranquil and the kids are doing exactly what I expected them to do. The finest hour becomes that hour when I transcend my fear, my shame, my guilt, my anger, the blame game. And I start asking myself, how can I become a channel for God's infinite love? for each one of my children, and not just my children, for my nephews and my nieces, for my cousins and my relatives, for all the children in our community, for all the teenagers that live on your block and that live in your neighborhood and that come to your synagogue and come to your shul. Which now brings me to the next step. And here's what I want to tell you, my dearest friends. Therapists are good. Some therapists are excellent. Some are not. like doctors, like lawyers, like rabbis. Some are great. They're wonderful. Some are fine. Some are mediocre. There are those who are destructive as well. That's number one. Number two, you can send your child and your teenager to the best therapist in the world, to the best teacher in the world, to the best healer in the world, and it's sometimes amazing and great. But let me tell you something. There's nobody who can do for your child what Tati and Mommy can do for your child, nobody in the world. And that is the call of the hour when you have a child who is struggling or who is not struggling. When you have a struggling child, the response is never detachment. The response is never, you don't belong in this house. The response is never, I will not tolerate this if you want to be a child in this home. Because here is what we have to understand. What we have learned in the last few decades is that all rebellion, all rebellion, all those behaviors that we define as so inappropriate, 
Sinisht Yiddish. It's not Tyridic. There's behaviors that are inappropriate physically, emotionally, morally, spiritually. Words that are used, substances that are digested, a certain dress code that is used or, or, or scorned on. Friends we hang out with, behaviors on Shabbos and Yom Tif, all of these rebellious behaviors that pain us. And our natural reaction is, tell those children that this does not get done in our house. If you want to live in my house, this is what you do. If not, have a wonderful day. I sacrifice my life so that you should have a good life. I'm not selfish, I'm doing this for you. Friends, it all makes sense, I get it. But here's what we have to realize. We could talk about this for a few months, but I'm just going to give it to you in a few minutes. What we have discovered, and I say, anybody who's dealt with this, what they have discovered is that in most of these cases, it's really all of these cases, I'm just saying most, you know, to be safe, but it's really 99.9%, and it's probably 100%. Children naturally want to be successful. They want to do what their parents want them to do. Which child wants to be estranged from mommy? Do you know such a child? Which child wants to be estranged from Tati? Which child wants to literally make sure that Tati and mommy have sleepless nights? They don't exist. But rather this child is suffering from something. This child is suffering You'll forgive me, I'm gonna, I get a little emotional when I talk about this, because I see it so often. I see it in my family, I see it everywhere. These children are suffering from something. They're broken. They're not bad. We're not bad people trying to become good people. We're broken people trying to become whole people. They're broken. Now, you may not see it. You may not identify it. Brokenness doesn't necessarily mean physical brokenness. Brokenness exists on many, many levels. And let me tell you something. You will notice that the children who are leaving Yiddishkeit are often the most sensitive in each family, the most perceptive in each family, the most spiritual in each family, and the most kind in each family. You tell me the truth. That boy or girl, when they were six years old or four years old, what was your feeling about them? And every mother will tell me he was the sweetest, kindest, most sensitive, perceptive, deep, empathetic person in the world. So what do you think happened at age 17? You think he suddenly became transformed into a pharaoh, into a Haman, into a Nebuchadnezzar, into a Titus? Do you really think that happened? You're an intelligent person. Do you think at age 17, because he watched a movie or because he met with a certain friend or because he saw something on YouTube or because he got a phone or because he drank some alcohol at the Kiddush Club, he suddenly became a cruel, sadistic, ruthless human being? Come on, you know this child. No, no, no. There's pain. There's a lot of pain. It's tremendous pain. He may be unaware of it. And if you're not going to see that, who do you want should see it? So you know what this child needs more than anything? This child needs connection. <clears throat> Much more connection. 
I heard from the rabbi, he's a good friend of mine, a very special man. He runs the Waterbury Yeshiva in Connecticut. He shared something so powerful. He shared with me. He went on a he went on some Yomtev program or some learning program in a hotel. They were in a kosher hotel, some retreat. And his six-year-old boy went on the elevator himself to go up to the room in the hotel. And the elevator got stuck. So there's a button to press, an emergency button, that takes you to the front desk, and you could speak to the front desk. And this boy, six years old, but apparently he was perceptive and intelligent enough to know which button to press. And he pressed the button. And the security guard or somebody at the front desk starts speaking to this boy. And the boy says, I'm stuck in the elevator. And he's six years old and he's alone in the elevator. And the person tells him, oh, you stop making those pranks, you troublemaker. You're going to get in trouble. You stop playing around with the elevator and calling the emergency and setting off the alarms just in order to drive everybody in this hotel mad and cause everybody to evacuate their rooms. And the six-year-old says, I'm stuck, I'm stuck, the elevator is not moving. You stop selling me a boat and pressing all these buttons, come on. And the man in charge refused to believe the six-year-old. Thank God, ultimately, somebody came to the rescue and everything turned out well. All is well that turns out well in the immortal words of Yogi Berra. And the rabbi says, He says, you know what happened to my six-year-old? I see with so many of my boys in the yeshiva. Kids who are stuck in elevators. They're stuck. There's something eating up at this child. Whatever it may be, this is not about what it may be. It could have been molestation. It could have been exposure to pornography in sixth grade or in fifth grade because there's always one friend who knows it. And when puberty developed, this child's puberty did not develop in the regular fashion that male or female puberty develops. And now this boy's entire psyche is responding to sexuality differently and he doesn't know what to do with himself and then he's learning certain texts in halacha about wasting seed and he thinks that he is the greatest sinner in Israel and if he's an honest person he has no place in the yeshiva anymore if he wouldn't be such an honest boy he would just go on playing the game but God blessed you with an honest boy an authentic person he can play the game he's stuck and what are we saying oh stop with your pranks you're lazy you get out of bed you lazy good for nothing you self-centered narcissistic spoiled brat do you know what your parents do for you normal responses friends but completely off completely not recognizing what is happening in the soul of that child children who are struggling need connection more connection more connection the Torah says in Vayigash at the end of Bereshis about Binyamin and Yaakov, Venafshoi, Kshura Benafshoi. Yehuda pleads with the Prime Minister of Egypt to let Binyamin go back to his father because if Yaakov sees that they came back without Binyamin and his soul is intertwined with his soul, Yaakov will not survive. The Balaturim, Rabbeinu Yaakov Balaturim, writes on that verse, he says the word Kishura, tied, 
is found one more place in the Tanakh, in Mishle, in Proverbs. It says, Iveles kishura belev hanar. There is iniquity or stupidity or folly that is bound up, that is entrenched, tied up in the heart of the youth. So the Balaturim says, why are these the only two places where it says the word kishura in Tanakh? And this is what the Balaturim says, open your heart. The Torah is teaching us because Iveles Kishura Belev Hanar, the only way to transform that is through Venafshay Kishura Benafshay. Because folly, iniquity, stupidity is tied up, it's entrenched, it's inter it's ingrained in the heart of the youth. The only way to counterbalance that is if your soul is intertwined with your child's soul. Children need to be connected to something. They need to feel attachment. They need to feel relationships. The antithesis of addiction is not sobriety. The antithesis of addiction is connection. The first thing the Torah says is not good. What's the first thing the Torah says is not good? Every day of creation, God looks at creation and it's good. Every day he looks at creation and he sees it's toiv, 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 toiv. Friday, it's toiv ma'od, it's very good. What's the first thing the Torah says is not good? I would think idolatry or not listening to God, all not good things. But that's not the first thing the Torah says is lo tov. You know what the Torah says is the first thing lo tov? Lo tov heyos ha'odom levadoi. It's not good for Adam to be alone. We call it today in psychology attachment disorder. Those of us who suffer from attachment disorder, it affects the entire trajectory of our life, our self-confidence, our ability to believe in ourselves, and equally important, our ability to have healthy relationships. Because my own attachment disorder does not allow me to experience healthy attachments as I grow up in my life with my primary caregivers, with my parents, with my siblings, with friends in school, with teachers, and ultimately with my own spouse and with my children. And God gives me an opportunity for tikkun, for repair. Those triggers drive me mad, but they're opportunities for tikkun, for healing, for repair. So the Balaturim says, a child needs to be connected to something, and if he or she is connected to folly, don't disconnect from them. When you disconnect from them, what are you doing? You're breaking them further. You're making them feel more alone, more devastated, more severed, more separate. It's the disconnection that is at the core of so many of the challenges. So what do I do? I disconnect even more. (laughs) It's not what you do. Father told me, he says, you know, I'm a good father. I said, what do you mean? He says, his son left Yiddishkeit. When his son comes home at night from work, Father says, I don't want to fight with him. So I go up to my bedroom and I lock my door so I don't have to confront him so we don't fight. I said, you're a good man, but that's not what your son needs. Your son doesn't need you to run upstairs to your bedroom and lock the door so you don't confront him. Your son needs to that you should stand at the door and when he comes and give him a big hug and spend time with him and schmooze with him and bond with him and allow him to feel your emotional pulse, your emotional heart. Go out with him and have fun with him and go into his world on his terms. Connect and bond without expectations. This is not the time for expectations. This is the time for connection because once there is connection, there can be healing. Once there is connection, there can be repair. And once there is healing and repair, every child has an ashama. Every child is a piece of God. These are not bad kids. They all want to do the right thing. 
Every yid is a divine soul. They're all connected. In fact, I would tell you they're connected more than many other kids who go through the system. Now you may look at me, it's strange. I, 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 I visit yeshivas a lot. And they're unbelievable boys in yeshivas. And unbelievable girls in all of our schools. Unbelievable. But then I also go out. And I spend time with the other boys and girls. They're not in yeshiva. Some of them haven't opened the Gemara in many, many years. Some of them in decades. And I look at them and I say, wow, they are so special. And in some ways they're even more special. Because they're very deep. They're very honest. They're very open. They're very authentic. And they're looking for their music. They say, what's the definition of love? The definition of love is learning the song in another person's heart. And singing it to them when they have forgotten the song. You love your child. Learn the song in your child's heart. And when they forget that song, don't get angry. I mean, you can get angry, but don't show that anger to them. You can show that anger to me or to your therapist, or to your rabbi or to Rabbi Shmuel. When they forget their song, don't run away. Sing it. And sing it with love. And sing it with passion. You believe in those kids. Because only when you believe in them will they be able to believe in themselves. And the harder it gets, the harder it gets, don't run. Get closer. Get closer. Get deeper. And I want to say something. In this Parsha, do not get advice from people who don't have experience. You don't go to a dentist because you have a problem in your heart. You go to a cardiologist. And if I'm having stomach pains, I don't go, (coughs) excuse me, to my foot doctor. There are many wonderful people. But somebody who does not have hands-on experience with struggling children, with struggling teenagers, do not get advice from them. You could get advice from them. But be very careful before you implement that advice. Because very often people give advice from a very cerebral, detached perspective. They mean well. They mean well. And maybe in their life it worked. But if somebody does not have real hands-on years and years of experience with these children, they cannot give healthy advice. You want to make sure you speak to people who get it. They know the parish. They know it from their own kids. They know it from other children. They've had success in this. And you don't feel, don't feel guilty for not listening to advice, for not listening for advice from people who are not experienced with it. And let me tell you something else. People will criticize you. You have maybe somebody on your block or maybe your brother, maybe your uncle, whose children are all from Baruch Hashem, wonderful Shechiyano, and he's going to watch what you're doing. They're going to come to you for Shabbos and they're going to say, it's not how you do it. Smile and say, thank you so much but you got to know what's working for your girl, for your daughter. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to make two more points, and then we're going to go to the quest polls and the questions. A mother shared this with me. A mother shared this with me. Her daughter was not doing well in school, and after a couple of years, she just dropped out. And she... Uh, she was defiant. She was not very firm anymore. Her dress code changed. 
Shabbos, Yom Tif, terrible chutzpah, vulgar language, filthy words. The mother shared this with me. Mother, <coughs> who I happened to know, and shared this story with me, and the daughter was, was just getting worse and worse and worse. So the daughter made, the, the mother arranged, the mother and the father arranged for a psychiatric and therapeutic and psychological uh, examination to thoroughly examine this girl and identify what she's suffering of. Cost them thousands of dollars. They did this, I think, with uh, NYU, they told me. They're from Brooklyn, so they did it with NYU in Manhattan. And after weeks and weeks and weeks of research, thousands of dollars later, they call the parents and they say she's suffering from defiance disorder, anxiety, and depression. So the father says, I had to pay you thousands of dollars to give me this diagnosis. We saw this for years. Anxiety, defiance disorder, and depression. They said, no, but we gave you a diagnosis. <laughs> you didn't have a diagnosis. We gave you a diagnosis. Baruch Hashem. They say, what now? I say, you have to put her on medication, these medications. This was a group of psychiatrists working with her. So the father calls them back and says, she doesn't want. So they say, well, your parents force her. How do you force her? She's a teenager. Well, bring authorities and you force her. And uh, if you need be, you, you hospitalize her until she takes the medication. These parents were very smart. They didn't feel good about it. They called Shimon, Rabbi Shimon Russell, who's been a therapist in Lakewood for 32 years, and maybe dealt with around 10,000 teenagers struggling with Yiddishkeit and with life. He moved recently to Jerusalem. He lives in Jerusalem. And they shared with him the story. And he immediately said, he says, from my experience, do not do that. What's going to happen is you will force her into meds, they wanted her to, the parents to force her into a residential program. She'll be there. She'll start cutting herself. Her situation will deteriorate. At some point, she's going to go to heroin and cocaine to numb her pain. And then she'll take her life. This was his prediction to the parents. He says they're completely not understanding trauma. This girl... Her defiance disorder is not her machine broke one day. Don't treat people like a machine. There is something broken inside of her. The defiance disorder is a symptom. What you need more than anything else is to become close to this girl. Stay connected to her. Get close to her. And he said at this point in life, you need to be with her. You need to feel that she feels your connection, even if that means that you're giving her things you wouldn't like to give her. But if that's going to cause her not to be able to blame her parents for her problems because you are on her side, she'll have to be able to look inside and she'll be able to calm down and start healing. They listened to her. And the mother recently told me it's been a year and it's a different house. She's a different girl. She still has a lot of challenges and struggles, but that defiance is not there anymore. And the mother says, the mother and the father tell me, they said, thank God we made that call. Now, I'm not here, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not judging anybody. Sometimes medication is, is a lifesaver, sometimes it's important. My most important message to you is, don't 
treat the symptoms only. Treat the person. And every person needs connection. And struggling teens need much, much, much more connection with Tati, Mommy, with the brothers, with the sisters, and with anyone who could connect to them. My last message to you is, I'm going to speak for another three minutes, my last message to you is, if you don't have compassion for yourself, you will never be able to have compassion for other people. A sefer called Sifzei Tzadik, it's a great Hasidic work, and he says, all of the emotions that we can cultivate within ourselves, we can also give to other people. If not, we can't. In order to be able to have compassion for your children, you need to have compassion for yourself. What do I mean? Your children are going to trigger you very heavily. The way you deal with those emotions will model how you will deal with your children's emotions and how they, you will teach them to deal with their own emotions. In such moments, when you're experiencing such crises, stop blaming yourself. It's completely irrelevant. Whether it's true or it's not true is also irrelevant. Have compassion for what's coming up. Just have compassion. The Balatanya says that the greatest attribute in the emotional life of a Jew is midas harachemim, the attribute of empathy. Why? Empathy is very unique, he writes. It doesn't deny, it doesn't repress, it doesn't suppress it also doesn't delegitimize, and it doesn't criticize. You see, when we have negative emotions, we tend to either deny them, or oh, they don't really exist. I have a muna, for sure I don't have these emotions. I'm a lover, I'm a good person, I don't have these emotions. We deny them, we suppress them, we repress them, or we get angry at them. We criticize them, we judge them, we delegitimize them, we argue with them, <laughs> which is exactly what they want. Midas harachamim is the ability to look at an emotion and just have empathy. Say, yeah, this is tough, it's painful. I'm not going to deny it, I'm not going to repress it, I'm going to feel it. I'm going to feel it acutely. And I'm also not going to criticize it and judge it because it's coming from my own broken parts. No need to judge it, no need to get angry at it. Because when we judge it and we get angry at it, what we're doing is we're not allowing actually to open, we're not allowing ourselves to open ourselves up to a deeper state of consciousness. We become entangled in judgment. But if you could let go, and you could just have compassion for everything that comes up inside of you. You know what happens? You open yourself up. You give, the Ramban says, that the reason they gave the goat on Yom Kippur, the scapegoat, is, he says sometimes you have to give the klipa something so that it doesn't choke. Because if you're choking it, it's going to fight back and it's going to destroy you. If somebody's choking you and you don't have any ear, you can't think. If I say, let's do a meditation. I'm choking, no meditation. If you choke your dysfunctional parts and they can't breathe anymore, you will not be able to do anything else. They will just fight back. Don't choke them. Give them the space they need. That's what the Ramban says. It's an unbelievable idea. Give them the space they need. Just give it compassion. Allow it to be. You're having these emotions. Yes, it's fine. Breathe into it. Do some grounding work. Do some somatic therapy. Get your stuff together. Know what's happening inside of you. And then what's going to happen is 
when your children trigger you, instead of responding, reacting from a place of trigger, you can have compassion for what just happened inside of you. And then you could respond from a place of love, from a place of connection. To put it in very simple words, and this is deep, so I want you to listen to this very carefully. If I don't work out my own toxicity, when I encounter your toxicity, your toxicity will trigger my toxicity. My toxicity will trigger your toxicity. Our toxicity will become entangled with each other and create a titanic volcano of toxicity. But if I work through my toxicity, at least I know how to quarantine it. I know what's happening. There's inner self-awareness. Then your toxicity will trigger my empathy. And I will be able to respond to you from an inner place of serenity and tranquility. The main work you have to do with your children is inner work. We don't like hearing this. We want to fix the problem. The main work you need to do when it comes to children who are suffering is work on yourself. What type of person are you? Have you worked out your own toxicity? Have you worked out your own insecurity, your own trauma, your own fear, your own shame, your own self-loathing, your own self-hate, your own patterns, your neural path, neural pathways, which always do certain things to protect you, your coping mechanisms. Do you know what your coping mechanisms are? Only when you become aware of those coping mechanisms and you're aware where your brain takes you, can you say, wow, that's painful, that's painful. I'm sorry that that's what I have to do to cope. And you can breathe and you can give yourself a little love and a little serenity and get the support that you need from your spouse from your therapist, from your rabbi, from your rabbitson, from close friends, from confidants, from people you trust. And then you could react, you could respond, not react, respond to your child from a place of inner emotional health, from inner emotional resilience, from inner emotional love. My dearest friends, you're about to begin a journey that is very different than any other journey in your life. It's not a journey about getting a new job or fixing your car or fixing your computer or getting advice how to do this or how to do that. This is a journey about self-discovery. It's a journey of self-transformation. It's a journey of opening yourselves up to become conduits of divine infinity. It's a journey to be able to go out of the personal, egotistical orbit of narcissism and insecurity to open ourselves up and become a channel of What does God want from me at this moment? How can I, how can you become a channel for infinite love, compassion, depth, authenticity, and healing? Thank you. Yes, I think that it can be massively, massively helpful to many, many parents for a few reasons. First of all, when we have people who understand what we're going through, there's nothing like it. 
And fathers and mothers really need this and deserve it because it's a journey that is tough. It's a tough journey. And you may say, no, I have it under control. I have it under control. And very often people want to say they have it under control because who doesn't want to have life under control? But what I have found is that many parents are really in denial of how much pain and shame they have. And when they could be in a safe environment, we do a convention a few times a year in America. It's called Kesher Nafshi. It's based on the verse I spoke about, Kesher Nafshi means a soul connection. And I want to tell you, Reb Shmuel and all the parents, we've had last time 1,500 people at this week long weekend long retreat, 1,500 people. That's approximately 700 or 750 couples, or maybe six, six, 700 couples, and who? So let me tell you. Satme Chasidim, Gere Chasidim, Babav Chasidim, Vishnitz Chasidim, Kloisenberg Chasidim, Pape Chasidim, Sadegere Chasidim, Chabad Chasidim, Litvaks, Ashkenazim, Sfardim, very right wingers, left wingers, Lakewood and Muncie and Williamsburg and Borough Park and Crown Heights and Queens, and people came from Israel and people came from London and people came from Yerushalayim and people came from all over the place. You had Streimlach and you had Hats and you had this type of Yamaka and that type of Yamaka. And mothers of literally all demographics within what you would call the firm world, the, 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 the religious world, the ultra-Orthodox world, the modern Orthodox world, the Haredi world, the Dati world. It was incredible. It was incredible. There was a lot of tears. People shared their stories. And you saw the love of parents. And you see that it's normal parents. It's not like abusive, crazy, psychopath psychopaths who have beaten their kids to a pulp. Wonderful people there. Principals, educators, Rabbonim, Rosh Yeshivas, Mashpiim, Mashgichim, successful business people, wonderful people. I know many of them personally. Philanthropists, nice families, stable people, emotionally healthy people. That's the generation we're living in. And I have seen fathers there who've shared with me, they said, what this weekend did for me was just incredible. You know, it opens up your heart to be able to be real, vulnerable. Let's face it, in the firm world, we sometimes become fake. We just say things that we feel we have to say. We don't even realize we're fake. You know, we start living camouflaged lives just to fit in emotionally, to fit in to this community, to fit into our perception of what God wants. And we're not real anymore. We lose that touch. And in these places, you see people are real. And you know what happens? These kids are mostly running away from fakeness, from, from, from brokenness. So I've been, to, and I've been to London recently for another convention. They made an organization in London. It was incredible, incredible. Just fathers and mothers being authentic, being honest. So I find it to be extremely helpful for at least many people. I would say most people, maybe all people, because of the camaraderie, the chizuk, the strength, and also the ideas. People need to learn about this. At all of these conventions, they have top, top experts in terms of therapy and education and parenting who have dealt with this for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And they, they, they talk about experience and parents speak about their experience. And it's, it's a very, very powerful and I find to be a necessary tool for at least most people. Yes, yes, yes. It's a great, great question. And the answer is, you know, the, the, the short and complex, complicated answer is, there's a reason you don't feel connection. There is something inside of you that's broken. 
Your children are mirroring that probably. So this is your opportunity, our opportunity, to face our own trauma. Because trauma takes you away from connection. What is trauma? Trauma doesn't mean that I'm living in Brooklyn and my car was towed. Trauma doesn't mean that I missed my flight. That happened to me many times. (laughs) Trauma doesn't mean I come to the airport and my luggage is not there. That has happened to me. Trauma does not even mean that I get a big bill in the mail and I don't know how I'm going to pay it. That's annoying. (laughs) It's painful. It's irritating. That's not trauma. That is not trauma. (laughs) Trauma is something that happens to me. Peter Levine once said, trauma is not what happened to you. Trauma is that which is still stuck in the body right now because it doesn't have an empathetic witness to contain it. Trauma are events or experiences or relationships in our life or the lack of them that caused us to actually experience impaired beliefs about ourselves, beliefs that affect parts of our brain, beliefs that cause us not to be able to be fully functional, not to be able to show up to life with all of our faculties, not to be able to be fully present. The brain has many different layers. We have the amygdala, we have the limbic brain, we have the prefrontal lobes. And what happens is with trauma, certain parts of our brain go offline, sometimes forever till we heal, or sometimes frequently. And we can't respond with those parts of our brain. We can't have connection. There's the famous expression, you know, when your amygdala is triggered, it's basically fight or flight or freeze. You can't show up with emotion. Either I fight you, which looks like you're getting angry at your spouse, you're getting angry at your kids, you hate the world, or you run. You're a good guy. Flight, you just run away. You run away emotionally for a month. (laughs) Or you freeze. You don't even run, you just freeze. Because you're in a danger zone, and your brain may be still responding to stimuli 20 years later from that space. You can't feel connected. So what I tell you is, it's time for healing. And there's a tremendous amount of healing available today. Tremendous amount. All forms of healing. Not just verbal therapy. Verbal therapy is sometimes ineffective. It's sometimes amazing. But sometimes it's ineffective. Sometimes verbal therapy together with different forms of somatic therapy. Healing that's coming from the body, within the body. Energy healing, neurofeedback. A lot of grounding work. And and there are so many different models from internal family systems, <coughs> excuse me, to the various somatic treatments that they do today. And you want to find a really, really good trauma expert to be able to help you to release your trauma because you may be suffering from it very, very seriously and your children are just victims of it. I should also mention today that there are centers where they have therapists and doctors who monitor psychedelic treatments to access trauma. I'm not now talking about recreational psychedelics. I'm talking about psychedelics used as a treatment by professional doctors and therapists to help you access your subconscious. And other forms of excuse me, treatments, psychotreatments that help people deal with it. But there's a lot of help out there. Educate yourself. Become self-aware, pray, connect. And the deepest form of healing trauma is having those support systems 
that help us feel connected so that we could release our traumas and begin to heal? Excellent question. Your child wants to go to the movie, you would not go to such a movie. Should you do it just in order to connect to the child? And the answer to that is, this is a very, very individual question, but certainly you should not reject this option. You should consider it. Meaning, if your child needs that connection, and by you going to the movie, you're going to demonstrate to them that connection, of course you should do it. Sometimes it may not be necessary. Sometimes you can demonstrate that connection by going out to a coffee, for a coffee together, or going shopping together, or playing football, or baseball, or frisbee, right? Or getting down on the floor and having fun in the house, or playing fuseball, or playing air hockey, or whatever, or working, or, or, or building a sukkah together, cleaning the house for Pesach. But if this is relevant to the connection, meaning if your child needs you to prove that they are more important than everything else, sometimes your child needs you to prove that the connection with them comes before your religion. They need you to prove it. And that's when you have to be like Moshe Rabbeinu. You know what Moshe did? He broke the luchas. He broke the luchas. That's what you have to do. you got to break the luchas. And say, Hashem, if you don't forgive them, erase me from the Sefer Torah. The people come first. So if this is so essential for the connection, and you may be too angry, and if you're angry, you're not going to be able to make a sober decision. You have to make a decision from a place of connection. So this is certainly something to consider. Going out of your own spiritual comfort zone, breaking your luchais, to be able to save your child and save your connection to your child. It's a great question. My child is so hurt. They're just withdrawn. They don't want a connection. They don't want to be with me. They just want to push me away. Yes. Which only means that they need the connection so much more, but they don't trust it. So therefore, you just have to be available at a moment's call. When they come into the kitchen, you know, 11 o'clock at night, right? Just be in your most loving space. Hi. Anything I can do for you? Maybe bring food to the room. Maybe if you know she loves sushi or there's a certain Danish that she's crazy about, just leave it by the bedroom. You don't stoop down to anger and frustration. Don't reciprocate with that withdrawal. You become connected, but you can't force yourself. So, you know, but you'll see, you'll see. Use every opportunity just to show goodwill just to be in a happy place. It's hard, because you want to scream, come on, get out of your mess, Get grow up and take responsibility for your life. She's going to become more withdrawn. Seize every opportunity she comes into the kitchen to have good food for her. Just to smile, just to smile. Say, hi, it's great to see you. I went shopping, I was thinking about you. Here is your yarn, here is your sushi, here is your Danish, here is your favorite milkshake. <laughs> Do a good hotel delivery to the room. Just stay connected. Do whatever you can. Hey, I got a great movie. You want to watch it? Hey, I have this great game. I have this great game. Do you want to do this game together? Hey, I'm taking, you know, I just saw this wonderful documentary. I don't know, but try whatever you can. If she says no, she says no. She's not interested in you. But you be fully, fully present because slowly there'll be a little more trust. And there'll be a little more healing. This is a lot of work. I'm telling everybody here. What I'm saying is not simple. Many parts of your brain will revolt and say, no, I'm going to teach them a lesson. They're broken. They're broken. 
Don't teach lessons. Connect. Thank you. It's all about connection. <laughs> it's all about connection. Connection between us and connection between us and our children. Chazak, chazak, v'niz chazek. And I, I just want to say, and a good connect, you need a good connect, the most important thing is you need a good connection with God. Because <laughs> when you're connected with Hashem, you want to say, Hashem, every morning, allow me to go out of a, go away from the place of fear and insecurity and become a channel for your love. That's what I want. Because when you're a channel, infinite blessings will flow through you and they won't get stuck as they're passing through your system. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.